Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Everyone is talking about the coronavirus vaccine. Where to get it? What side effects? Who to vaccinate first? They are talking about it, even in countries that claim to be virus-free. Now that the rest of the world is set on putting an end to this coronavirus pandemic, how much longer can some countries keep up the charade of denial and disinformation? I'm Macy Hoven. And I'm Mark Casillian. And in this special series of Teka Teka, we continue to look back at the events that took place during the pandemic. But this time, we hear the stories from journalists all over the world. In this episode, we check in with journalists from Ethiopia, Tanzania, and Yemen. Three countries in the East African region that have been dealing with their country's own domestic conflict long before the virus arrived. For the sake of their safety, we will not mention the names of our partners who courageously shared their stories. This is episode 2 of the Denial and Disinformation series produced by Puma Podcast in partnership with International Media Support. A lot has happened since we last spoke to our colleagues in East Africa. Pharmaceutical companies have started rolling out their coronavirus vaccines. And many countries, including ours, the Philippines, are falling in line to get our hands on enough doses. But it's a different story in Tanzania. Beyond the usual questions on vaccine procurement and vaccine inoculation, Tanzania is still trying to decide whether or not they need a vaccine in the first place. Tanzanian President John Magufuli declared the country coronavirus-free in mid-May 2020. Hence, without a virus... What use is a vaccine? I had an interview with the Deputy Minister for Health, Dr. Morel, who said that the government does not think of importing any vaccine from outside because uh, there's no COVID in Tanzania, according to the president and the government stand. But recently, I heard the minister herself, Dr. Wajima, said they have not decided yet if they, they are importing or they are not importing the, the vaccines. So that means maybe they are, they are still discussing. Uh, they understand that if the people for, uh, of Tanzania, if you don't uh, vaccinate, it's, uh, it would be very difficult to travel. Because uh, in any country that we, you go, if you are vaccinated, then you have to show the certificate. An article by African News quoted the spokesman of the Tanzanian Ministry of Health as supposedly casting doubt on the efficacy levels of current global vaccines. Spokesman Gerald Chami says the country intends to use local herbs for COVID-19. While the rest of the world is positioning itself for the next step to end the global crisis, Tanzanian officials are bent on keeping up the facade of their self-declared virus-free world. During a visit to Tanzania by the Chinese foreign minister, 
In January, a foreign minister from China arrived in Tanzania for an official visit. The president reiterated that uh, we don't have coronavirus in Tanzania, and uh, all the delegation from China were just laughing. And those, the delegation were, you know, they weren't on their first masks. But in our side, no one was, uh, was on first mask. And actually, just yesterday, the president, Mozambique president, Nusi, he arrived in the country with his uh, face mask on, but uh, our side, no one was masked. That is the, actually the kind of situation that we are having here. Meanwhile, in the Philippines, coronavirus cases continue to surge as government struggles to roll out a clear vaccination plan. Questions continue to be raised on the vaccine's procurement process, availability of storage units, and budget for vaccines. As of today, the country's Food and Drug Administration has not yet given the green light for any coronavirus vaccine use in the Philippines. And yet, reports have surfaced that last September, vaccines were smuggled for use for President Rodrigo Duterte's bodyguards. Yeah, so it's smuggled because uh, it's, they're not authorized. Eh? Only the government can authorize that. I don't know how uh, it will be resolved. The Presidential Security Group received China's Sinopharm vaccine, which claims to be 79% effective based on the latest clinical trials. Duterte claims he knew nothing about the incident. And top officials have expressed their preference for yet another China-made vaccine, Sinovac. Health experts have raised their concerns for both Sinovac and Sinopharm. Philippine vaccine experts will consolidate technical data on Chinese COVID-19 vaccine Sinovac amid news reports the vaccine is only 50.4% effective in preventing COVID-19 infections based on clinical trials in Brazil. Half a million Filipinos have been infected with COVID-19 as the virus continues to spread in its populous cities. As infection and death rates continue to rise, efforts by the national government to secure vaccines for the entire country are proving to be too slow for comfort. In order to ensure that their constituents are protected, local government units are taking matters into their own hands. Almost 40 major cities, including Makati, Manila, and Quezon City, have already inked deals with pharmaceutical company AstraZeneca. Never has clear science been more vital in this fight against the coronavirus disease. Science denial and COVID conspiracy theories continue to spread all over social media. And without clear support from government, doctors and other health professionals find themselves being silenced. Our colleague in Tanzania tried to reach out to some doctors working in the front lines of this pandemic, and this is what he said. No doctors actually who is ready to talk. No one is ready to discuss or to be interviewed on COVID-19. I tried with my, all my, my connections to get them. You know, we, we talk and say, no, please don't call me, please don't put me anywhere you know, on paper or don't put me on any, any social media. So they don't want to risk the employment. But when you talk to them or you, you discuss in those, they say, 
we have COVID and probably we have the second wave because uh, there's all these significant uh, signs of those who are coming, those who are visiting hospitals with the, this uh, kind of symptoms of COVID-19. So they're just saying, please take care of yourselves and your family and tell others who are close to you that we have coronavirus, but they cannot come in the open and say this uh, because the government and especially the president doesn't want that because they stand from the government and the president himself that we don't have coronavirus in the country. Some people in Tanzania still get themselves tested for COVID-19, but the results are not reflected on their country's tally of confirmed cases, which officials have stopped doing since May. There's some free hospitals which do tests and uh, the patient actually, they are told, or their close relatives that this patient has COVID-19. So they kind of isolate them in some rooms and then they are treated with the, the maybe that local herbs. And the government denies these cases. It is quite open that when you talk anything about uh, coronavirus in Tanzania, the next day you don't see the sun. The security system, the security guys will come and they grab you, they take you uh, somewhere and hide you and try to interrogate you. Over at Yemen, journalists face similar threats. The last time we spoke to our colleague, he told us that journalists who report on COVID-19 receive serious threats from security officials. But now he tells us that there is a pattern in how these threats are being carried out. Despite the division among these factions, they are all united in uh, suppressing journalists from reporting COVID-19 spread in Yemen. And uh, they consider it as a national issue, like national security threat. The bad thing is that they view uh, reporting COVID-19 as like a driver for uh, public disorder and the driver for the spread of the pandemic. And this is this is disinformation, this is untrue. As we talked to the doctor uh, one hospital in Sana'a, she said one of the drivers of the spread of the pandemic among the population. Their methods in like implementing their procedure was to send messages or calls to journalists, stop reporting about the COVID-19, stop publishing information about the spread of the pandemic. This is a method they used in suppressing reporting COVID-19. Since 2015, Yemen has been divided by several warring parties. Journalists in Yemen who were reporting on COVID-19 said the data was completely inaccessible. They do not have the numbers on infected cases, medical equipment, quarantine centers, and even COVID deaths. Government officials who were contacted for information declined a response. Authorities say this is all part of their concealment policy to protect the public. From the beginning of the pandemic, they took strict actions against reporting the COVID-19. They are saying it's conspiracy from the U.S. They are saying it's like an American uh, tool to suppress uh, countries and states of the world. They think that the people will be fearful and this fear will lead to like uh, psychological consequences. Maybe people will start dying immediately because of this like uh, psychological uh, fear and because of this like shock. The United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres, he addressed the parties to conflict in Yemen to use the COVID-19 as an umbrella and start to focus and start to combat this threat in Yemen 
by having one national strategy, by having a joint national uh, management to prevent the spread of the pandemic. I repeat my call on all parties to work with my special envoy and agree on the United Nations proposal to achieve a nationwide ceasefire, make progress on economic and humanitarian measures to alleviate suffering and build confidence and resume an inclusive Yemeni-led political process. Yemenis desperately need peace. But unfortunately, uh, parties to the conflict, because they have not reached their objectives from this conflict, they didn't agree and they responded by like having this silence and having this banning of reporting COVID-19 to continue the fighting until they like achieve their objectives from the war. Yemeni doctors partly blamed the concealment policy for the sudden rise in COVID-19 cases. There was a surge of the number of deaths and infections among the population, particularly in June and July. And the doctor said uh, this was like a direct impact of the concealment policy. As a result of such policy, people took no action, people took no preventive measures to stay safe uh, from the pandemic. After the break, we take a look at the response of journalists to the denial and disinformation. The concealment policy resulted in having journalists facing two choices, either to investigate the issue and to report, or just to stay silent and don't report anything. You're still listening to Episode 2 of the Denial and Disinformation series initiated by International Media Support, produced by Puma Podcast. The concealment policy in Yemen has negatively affected COVID-19 reporting in the country. Journalists were forced to publish stories under fake names, rely too heavily on government data, and limit their own stories. They don't publish their real names when they write, when they publish to stay safe and to protect themselves. Also, they, they don't have physical meetings. They use the internet to me to like communicate with editors and the publishers. Also, they don't take other side. For example, if we have a story about the Houthis, reporting information about their bad behavior or their bad acts, we don't get like the, a quote from the Houthi official because if we got the quote from the Houthi officials, they will know who is reporting this and they will arrest him immediately. So one of our like methods to stay safe, we don't report the other side uh, like voice or opinion uh, to stay safe. This is, uh, of course, impacting our professionalism, but we have to do it. We have no other option. There will be psychological like torture, uh, like inside feeling, oh, I am guilty because I didn't report this. For example, some journalists will say, it is my job to report this situation. Our colleague tells us that the YJS, or the Yemeni Journalists Syndicate, an organization created to defend the rights of journalists and press freedom, has received several complaints from journalists who were threatened or banned access to information. In an interview with YJS board member Nabil Al-Asidi, he says, authorities reacted badly to the media. Cases of suppression and persecution were reported, particularly in the Houthis-held areas. Unfortunately, no action is taken from the syndicate to like to address these intimidations. Uh, why? Because there is no national government to report to the government and uh, ask them 
or force them to take actions because of the division among the factions and we have so many like security units we have so many uh, armed groups journalists in ethiopia have made little progress since we last spoke to our colleague in episode one we learned that these journalists lack personal protective equipment during their coverage of the pandemic our colleague in ethiopia veteran journalist mekonin tashome talked to the heads of broadcasting networks in the country and some covid survivors I talked to the Ministry of Health Communication Director, Dr. Hagani Gaza, and uh, some media managers like Selashidabi, Department Head of the Ethiopian Broadcasting Corporation, EBC, uh, the national broadcaster, English uh, news desk. And the other one is Daniel Sagan. Actually, uh, he is one of the uh, COVID-19 survivors of the Ethiopian television. He was contracted with... Uh, COVID-19, but now is well in the back to work. And uh, the, the same is true for Mangustu Gabri. He is another journalist working for the Ethiopian Broadcasting Corporation and uh, contracted COVID-19. And uh, the other journalist I talked to was uh, Yodi Tadmasu. Yodi Tadmasu is uh, a journalist for Afri Health. She is an editor-in-chief and supervisor of the Afrihabs television, and she talked to the same issue and also focused on women journalists. Much like other frontliners, the primary concern of journalists is the safety in their workplace. For example, uh, Celeste Dabi is a journalist and a manager in the Ethiopian television, a national broadcaster. He told me that journalists are not protected well. They don't have these equipments and even the training. And he thinks that institutionalizing of the protection effort is not there. Here's a clip from McConnell's conversation with Seleshi Dabi, the department head of the Ethiopian Broadcasting Corporation. For journalists to work in a, such an environment like in a pandemic is not a new phenomenon. It's been there for a while. Like we have the Ebola crisis which was not very long ago. And then before that, we have this, uh, what the virus, similar like to this COVID virus, avian virus, the avian flu, and we have this H1N1. Journalists, as such as part of the society, they are being protective of themselves. They are trying to protect themselves, but the protection of journalists as such, not institutionalized when it comes to our context, to Ethiopia, okay? Institutions does not give any concern attached to this pandemic, how, the, you know, their journalists go about, you know, reporting on this pandemic. There's, the concern is there, but it's not being reinforced or reinvigorated as such, so as to get the most out of it. And uh, our institution is no different. To say the least, we did not do anything, you know, to help our journalists get the best of protection. We just send them about, you know, on errand to report on the pandemic. They go to the hospitals, they go to places of quarantine, places of isolation, with no personal protection or protection per se. It has been a very dangerous environment. Uh, we suffered a lot as such, and many of our journalists get infected in doing so. So we felt the brunt of the pandemic. 
were reporting uh, on the pandemic. McConnell spoke to two journalists from EBC who were infected with the virus. So Mangusto told me that during even the lockdown time, he was using public transportation. So he, he told me, I have been using taxi to come to the office. Of course, you try to wear your masks, he says. Eh? But the, the possibility of our contamination has been so high in the public transport. And we suspected that that situation has exposed him and uh, this infecting on equipments. For example, the editing machine, the computers, they are using in common, yeah? So he thinks the EBC does not disinfect this uh, equipment properly. He told me that he, he has no idea where he contracted the virus. But these situations are very dangerous. Aside from personal protective equipment, journalists in Ethiopia lack medical insurance. This troubles a lot of media practitioners and frontliners who come home to their families after being out in the field all day. Knowing the risk of bringing the virus home and the little protection and accountability that their company has for their well-being. Here's Yodit Admasu, the editor-in-chief and supervisor of Africa Health TV. I myself as a woman, you know, a mother myself, and for me what I found challenging is going home to my son and I have to be active in my work as a journalist and then I have to go back and every night I wonder is he going to catch? Am I infected? Is he safe? That kind of thing. All those worries, they come to your mind. So uh, for me, I found it very difficult. Ethnic-oriented conflicts and the repeated blockage of the internet have also affected journalists. But one issue that continues to hound them even before the pandemic is press freedom. There are a lot of challenges for journalists in Ethiopia. The first one is freedom of expression also. I myself was censored when it comes to reporting, especially issues that are related to the public, because we have to be true to the public. We have to report things like uh, some hazardous chemicals that are being spread in the environment or some embezzlements that are going on. We have to do those kinds of reporting. Accurate reporting has never been more crucial than today. A lot of false information and conspiracy theories about the coronavirus have surfaced. Award-winning South African scientist Salim Abdul Karim has raised concerns over this warning that misinformation in parts of Africa are hampering COVID-19 efforts. Here's McConnell again. Many, many things mentioned, reported about it. For example, how it is transmitted or how it affects people, for example, uh, related with immunity or your uh, diet. I don't know, we had a lot of confusion. So traditional medicine was one of our confusion here in Ethiopia. As a traditional society, we have our own local drink. It's alcoholic. It's called areki. So people think that actually it is alcoholic. Medical people told us that the virus will stay in our nose and throat for some days. So since it is an alcoholic, 
it may kill uh, the virus. So people, uh, you see them even today in the nights when you, if you go around. And the other is the government called these traditional medicinal uh, professionals since March, actually. Then these groups came and announced that they have the medicine. Fighting for the truth is a tough job. But without the efforts of these journalists, state actors and large institutions will only continue to spread disinformation with impunity. That's why it is all the more important for independent journalism to continue to create and produce stories that tell the truth. Because these stories may prove to be the difference between life and death. Again, I'm Macy Hoven. And I'm Mark Casillian. This story is part of a series on denial and disinformation during COVID initiated by the International Media Support, produced by Puma Podcast. Follow Teka Teka on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by Carl Javier and Kat Ventura. It was edited by Nina Toralba. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.,